Okay, three, two, one. Oh my goodness. Good morning, good afternoon. Whatever it is for you, I hope you're having a fantastic day. My name is Zach Schaumler. This is Strong Opinion Sports. Thank you so very much for tuning in. Today is Friday, October 4th. Uh, man, it's a big weekend. I know there's a big game coming out. All my friends are excited. I'm, I'm not. I'm not a multiplayer guy. I play a lot. Like, video games for me are a time to play alone by myself. I don't like to. I'm just not a. I'm, a, I'm an introvert. That's just how I am. Uh, also, Joker comes out this weekend. Oh, my gosh. If, uh, if you don't know, Joker. How do you, uh, you know what Joker is. Look up the movie Joker if you haven't already heard about it. It's uh, hopefully I'm going to see it. And I hope it's going to be my favorite movie of the year. Looks incredible. It got you know, Joaquin Phoenix. It's just I, I think and I hope. It's going to be incredible. I'll relate back to you guys next week. But my guess is that it's going to be unbelievable. Uh, today we have a big podcast. We'll talk about Russell Wilson. I'm going to make some claims about him. And, you know, I, I hope that I don't make bold statements very often. And I, I think, you know, the reason is that I don't want it to lose its weight when I say important stuff. So when I talk about Russell Wilson, understand I come from an informed position and I don't do that very often. I don't very often say this guy is blank. Because I just don't, you know, I, I usually make statements. I'm much more measured and cautious. I believe in Russell Wilson a lot. We'll talk about him. We'll talk about Dwayne Haskins. We'll talk about Dak Prescott. We'll do a film analysis for both of those two quarterbacks out of the NFC East. We will end this show with Ask Zach. And then actually, no, that's not true. We'll do Ask Zach. And then at the very end of the show, we'll talk about the games on Sunday, do a the storylines for the weekend coming up. Uh, I want to start here, though. I, you know, with, you know, here's I have a plan for next week. I'll tell you the plan after Russell Wilson. How about that? You want to hear about Russell Wilson? Then we can get into my plan. I just, you know, I'm going to tell you now. I'm going back and forth. Might as well do it. Next week, the film analysis videos I am planning to do are Marcus Mariota, Mitchell Trubisky versus Chase Daniel, comparing the two, and then Gardner Minshew, the Jaguars quarterback. Um, I'm saying this now so that nobody can accuse me of copying anybody else. If other creators choose to cover those couple quarterbacks, Congratulations. I'm happy for them. Just know today, October 4th, this was my idea. I'm covering those couple quarterbacks because I'm so, I know I shouldn't listen, but I hate when people say I'm copying other people. I'm not. That's my plan for next week. If other people do it, that's what happens. Okay. If other people who make film analysis videos happen to cover the same guy, wasn't me. I, that, I already have this plan. These are the couple I'm covering. Um, I want to now shift to Russell Wilson. So last night, the Rams and the Seahawks played on Thursday Night Football, and I saw a couple things right off the bat that mattered to me. One is that it was a great game. It was so much fun. That's exactly what I want from a football game. If you watched, you enjoyed it too. We saw scoring, we saw big plays, and a close finish. And my favorite thing going into a football game is not knowing who's going to win. When I'm not sure, even as an analyst, I, I like to, you know, I usually can tell, you know, like an Alabama game, for example, I always know, oh, uh, Alabama's probably going to win this game. But last night with the Rams, Seahawks, I had no idea. And the whole time, I didn't know. And I was on the edge of my seat. It was great. And I know the game had, you know, this game, this game came down to until the final six seconds, I had no idea. The, 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 uh, the Rams missed a kick. Seahawks got the ball back. They kneeled. Game over. And it, it was just perfect, man. And I got a message on Instagram from a follower of mine who said, please don't trash my Rams. And I'm like, I don't understand what, what would you think I'm going to say? There's nothing to trash the Rams for. Um, you know, they, they played really well. They fought hard. Uh, they lost cause they missed a last second field goal. I have nothing bad to say about the Rams today. Uh, they, they played well. They fought hard. It was a well, a close game. 
And uh, I just, I didn't understand that message, but I just want to say I enjoyed. That game was exactly what I wanted. I really, really enjoyed it. Now, we do have two more takeaways from the Rams and Seahawks. Number one is this. Uh, it's a belief I've had for a long time, but, and it's, it's something that I think, I, I think, so I don't believe Russell Wilson gets enough recognition on the national stage. I don't. I live in the Pacific Northwest, so I understand that I have a front row seat to Russell Wilson. He's on local TV all the time. All my friends always talk about him. I see Russell Wilson a lot more than other people, I think, around the country. And, you know, I just don't think he's appreciated enough on a national scale. Nobody ever asks me Ask Zach questions. I've gotten one ever about Russell Wilson on Ask Zach. No one sends me messages about him. No one seems to appreciate how great Russell Wilson really is. And I'm going to make some claims about him in this topic where I'm going to say, he's incredible. He's this. I, think he's, I, I really think he has a chance to win MVP this year. And understand, I don't give high praise very often. I very rarely say, this guy is unbelievable and incredible. I'm very skeptical as a person. I evaluate quarterbacks. That's literally my job. I'm a quarterback analyst. And, you know, when I talk about Russell Wilson, please understand, I come from a very informed position. I've watched a lot of film. I've watched so many quarterbacks in the NFL. And Russell Wilson does stuff that I cannot even fathom other quarterbacks doing. There's a moment before the second half uh, where Russell Wilson had three touchdowns last night and only three incompletions. That's unbelievable. That's, <laughs> that's not only ridiculous. And then he finished the night. He was 17 for 23 passing, 268 yards, four touchdowns, no interceptions. But forget the stats. I know those are numbers. They sound good. He, didn't, he could add more yards passing, I know, in theory, when you look at the scheme of things of other quarterbacks. But I don't think people understand what he does so well. You know, there are two people when I watch football that are just in their own category, doing their own thing, doing things other people simply cannot do. That's Patrick Mahomes and Russell Wilson. The way they play football, they both have their unique skill set, but their skill sets are, are ones that you cannot duplicate or replicate anywhere else. When I watched them play and when I watched Russell Wilson play last night, I saw Russell Wilson make six or seven, if not eight plays that other people simply are not capable of making. And it's so weird to me, he doesn't get appreciated more. I understand Mahomes can launch a 65-yard pass without looking behind his back into a tiny, like, <laughs> like pen-sized window downfield. That's like ridiculous. But Russell Wilson consistently, if not every single play, avoids a sack, will step up in the pocket, run around, buy, a so buy himself a little bit more time, a couple extra seconds, throw the ball downfield for a 12-yard chunk or a 15-yard chunk or a big play or a touchdown. The way he buys time, the way he extends a play, nobody in the NFL can extend a play as effectively as Russell Wilson, and nobody can throw the ball downfield while extending a play as well as Russell Wilson. It's an uncanny, unbelievable ability he has. And I, I look, he's, got, he's great in rhythm. He's a great quarterback when he's not running around. But his ability to make plays with his legs and buy time, even without running downfield, he'll run for like a, a little six yards he'll do by running to the left, keeping his eyes downfield, throwing the ball downfield. That right there is special that nobody else really can do as well or as consistently as Russell Wilson. He also, by the way, we talk about his legs. It's not like he runs to run. Russell Wilson runs to extend plays and throw downfield. And when he does run, what does he do? He slides. Oh, maybe Josh Allen, the Bills quarterback, could maybe watch some Russell Wilson film and learn a lesson or two. Get down, slide. What Russell Wilson does so well is one, runs and extends plays. 
But Tui avoids getting hit so frequently and so well. And the third thing he does that's incredible is the way he limits negative plays. There's a play last night where he pops to the right. He's going to throw a screen pass to the right. And the Rams played it beautifully. They had Everybody's covered. Nothing's open. What does Russell do? He tucks the ball and runs for two yards, gets tackled like about two yards past the line of scrimmage. I understand you go, busted play, runs for two yards. But what he didn't do is A, didn't force the ball into a bad situation. And B, got back to the line of scrimmage, really limiting a negative play, making that a positive two-yard gain instead. Over and over and over again, Russell Wilson does positive things. And I just don't think people understand enough how good he is and what he does. You know, this year, he's, you know, not only is Russell Wilson's team four and one, he's thrown for 1,409 yards, 12 touchdowns, and zero, zero interceptions so far through four games. I guess through five games now, four and one. And I think it's really possible. I got a question on Ask Zach a while ago. I ignored it. I wasn't ready to answer it yet about Russell Wilson. And the question was, do you think Russell Wilson could win an MVP this year? And yes, I think he could. And again, be, be very understanding. I'm not just, you know, Stephen A. Smith and people on a lot of other networks make big giant claims all the time. They're boisterous. This is the blah, blah, blah. And I don't do that. I'm very calm. I try to be very measured. But also when I recognize something that is unbelievable and a person playing a certain way that's really, really good, I will acknowledge that. And so I'm acknowledging now Russell Wilson is playing lights out. The way he played last night was incredible. The plays he made consistently were awesome. And I, I just want to be very clear. I'm a measured guy. I don't get on the stand and speak highly of people very often. What Russell Wilson's doing this year is incredible. He's going on a tear. And I think he does have a chance to win an MVP. And the way he's leading his team is so cool. And it's just, I want to be on, uh, honest about it. You know, <laughs> Russell's playing great. And Russell Wilson on any roster could carry a team to, I think, seven wins at least. But the other thing that needs to be said, is this is the second point of analysis I wanted to talk about today. I was very, 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 very embarrassingly wrong about the Seattle Seahawks when I made my prediction about them this year. Before the season, I predicted the Seattle Seahawks to win eight games, to go eight and eight. And now, to be, to be honest, to be very clear, I made this prediction before they traded for Jadavion Clowney, the defensive end from the Texans. But Jadavion Clowney does not elevate this team so much that the, he maybe wins them one or two more games. It's the roster around Russell Wilson and around Jadavion Clowney that's really impressing me. Guys like, what is that again? Will Disley, the tight end, coming kind of out of nowhere. Like, if you live in Seattle, you know who he is. But Will Disley, for the most part, on a national level, it's not a well-known player, a guy who played defensive end for UW, moved over to tight end in college, then plays tight end for the Seahawks. He's playing lights out. He's really good. He's a perfect contributor. And there's a lot of guys like that. DK Metcalf, the wide receiver for the Seattle Seahawks, has found a role perfectly by being the deep threat in the Seahawks offense. The Seattle Seahawks love to run the ball. They ran for 118 yards last night with their running back, Chris Carson. They run the ball. They use play action. Then they throw the ball vertically downfield. DK Metcalf, their receiver, is a perfect, perfect fit for that role in the Seahawks offense. Not to mention Chris Carson, the running back I mentioned him earlier, is running really hard. And then Bobby Wagner, the, the heart and soul of the Seahawks defense, is playing fantastic. And I don't know why he's not mentioned more. I understand that, you know, I've never really gotten, people say, well, the Seahawks are out on their own. No one's really talked about them nationally. And I've always lived in the Northwest. I live in the Portland area. So I've, I've heard about the Seahawks my whole life. And I've never understood Oh, nobody does talk about them. And I look at the lists of people. Everyone talks about Luke Keekley, And Luke Keekley, Luke Keekley, Luke Keekley is always mentioned as the best linebacker 
in the NFL, most likely. No one ever brings Bobby Wagner into that conversation, the linebacker from Seattle. Look, I'm not a Seahawks fan. I'm just a guy watching football objectively, but my friends are, and I hear about them all the time. And I kind of laugh at my friends when they go, Bobby Wagner's blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you're just a fan. You're a blind, irrational fan. And the more I pay attention, the more I go, oh, no, there's something to this. Bobby Wagner is incredible. And Chris Carson's running the ball really well. And Russell Wilson's unbelievable. So I just want to really lift up the Seahawks today. The way they played last night to beat the Rams was awesome. And it was a close game, whether they won this game or lost. You know, the game was in the balance. If the Rams made that field goal right at the end, I'd still be saying the same thing. I've been really impressed with the effort and the football the Seahawks have played. Again, if the Seahawks lose that game last night, I still say the same thing. I, I really was very impressed with the Seahawks, and I've been impressed all year. If you look at the remaining games on the Seahawks' schedule, I said they were going to win eight games. That's laughably wrong. They're 4-1. and one. And then all the games that I thought would be tough wins down the road for the Seahawks are these games. So I thought the Browns, the Ravens, the Falcons, the Buccaneers, the Eagles, and the Vikings— I really thought those were going to be tough games for the Seahawks that are are big matchups. And, you know, first of all, the Falcons and the Vikings are looking more and more like kind of jokes. Uh, But those six games are all very, very winnable for the Seattle Seahawks. They're going to go far better than what the eight and eight I predicted. And uh, I simply do not see a reality where that happens. I don't see a reality or a future this year where the Seahawks only win eight games. I think they have a great quarterback, a great team. They've built a great I mean, every year Pete Carroll does this. He builds a great roster, has great camaraderie. They fight really hard for him. And then when it doesn't work, they get rid of guys and bring new guys in. We'll fight hard and have a young college-like enthusiasm. And so I just want to admit, I was wrong about the Seahawks. Again, they're a playoff team, most likely. They play the 49ers twice coming up. That'll be a really fun matchup. I think the Seahawks have a better quarterback. I think the Seattle wins at least one, if not two of those games. And there's, you know, not only was I wrong about the Seahawks, I didn't value Russell Wilson enough. And so to me, today, I want to lift him up and say, I think right now he should be in the MVP conversation. And when we talk about MVP at the end of the year, week 16, week 17, as the year comes to a close, don't forget about Russell Wilson. He's easy to forget. He's in the upper left corner of of the country. It's a smaller market in comparison to New York and Los Angeles and Chicago. I'm just listing, I don't know. But my, my point is, it's easy to, like in Dallas, it's easy to forget about Russell Wilson when you're in Dallas or when you're, or you're in New York. Don't. Don't forget about Russell Wilson. Uh, he's really, really impressive. The way he plays is, it's him and Mahomes that both do things nobody else can do. And I just wanted to mention him and lift him up because I was so impressed last night. And I've been impressed, impressed all year with Russell Wilson. I just have, I've quietly watched and not said enough. And so that to me was a narrative from last night was, hey, the Seahawks are better than I thought at least. And Russell Wilson is playing lights out and does things nobody else can do. I know I rambled a little bit there. Um, that's you know, but I, I really do. I think it's important to lift up the Seahawks and to acknowledge. Hey, like I'm seeing something that I think is important to acknowledge and talk about. I want to now shift gears before I'm going to drink water first. But I do want to talk about. I want to now shift gears to Dwayne Haskins, the Redskins quarterback. He's a rookie. Uh, we'll talk about him him in a minute. I need some water. My throat's really tight and really dry. Um, last week, Redskins rookie quarterback, Dwayne Haskins played for the very first time. He played against the Giants and his stat line was kind of concerning. He was nine for 17 passing. That's only a 52% completion percentage. He had 107 yards, zero touchdowns and an alarming three interceptions. 
And that's a really kind of, you know, scary stat line that makes me want to hesitate and go, ooh. And my knee-jerk reaction was not good. I looked at the numbers and I looked at the highlights and I went, yeah, he is not ready at all. And I want to acknowledge, though, I think my initial reaction was a bit hard on him, a bit knee-jerk. So I watched the film and I came up with eight important points worth discussing from Dwayne Haskins' performance against the Giants. The number one thing is that the Redskins could not run the ball at all when he was playing quarterback for them. He only had one run that went for more than three yards. That was the very first play Dwayne Haskins was in, or the very first time they ran the ball with him, which they ran for nine yards with Adrian Peterson. And then after that, you know, that one big run, they had a bunch of runs that went for negative two yards or no gain or maybe one yarder. <gasps> Every once in a while, oh, they ran for <laughs> two yards. It was awful. They could not run the ball at all with Haskins at quarterback. And their inability to run the ball leads me to talk about the weird and, I think, unwinnable situation Dwayne Haskins was put into by his coaching staff. So he was put into the game down 14-0. to Eventually, he was down three scores. And the Redskins abandoned the run altogether. Right? They did not run the ball. They kept throwing and throwing and throwing. They're down three scores. They're trying to mount a comeback. They're trying to throw the ball. And it didn't work. I mean, here's what's baffling, by the way. You have a rookie quarterback in his first ever performance, and you're choosing to throw the ball every single down. That's just weird to me, and I don't like that. But here's what's even more confusing is that after Dwayne Haskins' second interception, so to, to set it up, there's a long drive where they throw the ball a bunch. They're throwing, they're throwing, they're throwing, and Haskins throws an interception. That's how the drive ends. On the very next drive after that interception, the Redskins came out, ran the ball three plays in a row, went nowhere, and punted the ball away. And it was very bizarre. It's like, you clearly don't trust him. Why is he playing? I just kept wondering, like, what is the goal? On film, there's no clear, consistent goal with the Redskins offense. I think, I'm sure Haskins was confused and, and curious, too. Are you trying to mount a comeback and throwing the ball every down? Are you trying to just run a balanced offense and giving up on the victory and just saying, hey, we're going to lose this game, but get our quarterback some valuable reps so we can learn? Or are you going to run the ball every play and just not trust your quarterback at all and try to run the clock out? It was so baffling. And just that's the word I keep thinking of. It's just I had no clear understanding of what the Redskins were trying to do. And it looked like Dwayne Haskins didn't either. In fact, it looked like the Redskins didn't know what they were doing. Like, this is bad coaching. And you're putting your quarterback in a bad scenario, which does not allow him a good chance to succeed. The third point I want to talk about is that he wasn't that terrible. One of his first throws, he does a great job with his progression. As I start inside, he doesn't like what he sees. He works outside and hits a receiver on the perimeter. That's good. And he had a couple other throws where he threw the ball underneath and took what the defense gave him. I was like, ah, oh. you know, despite the stat line and what I saw on film, and no one ever showed you the highlights where he does good. You just see hear the highlights where he throws bad throws. And the fourth point I want to talk about is that he moved really, really well. There's a play where... You know, a couple times he, he extended a play and threw the ball downfield for a gain. And another play where he, you know, he buys time, he escapes the pocket, does a good job keeping his eyes downfield. Then he sees a running lane and he takes off. And that's awesome. That's good stuff from a rookie quarterback. Now, the fifth point I want to bring up is that, hey, okay, if you're going to run, we would love to see you slide. You know, there's a play where what we don't want is we don't want him getting hurt like Josh Allen did. You don't want your quarterback getting a concussion just avoid hits. If you're a quarterback, learn from Russell Wilson. Avoid taking big hits. Now, the last three points I want to talk about you know, are, are points that I think Dwayne Haskins needs to 
really look at with emphasis. He needs to get better and overcome these next couple things. The sixth thing I think is really important is that he's slow at processing defenses. There's a third and 10 where he holds on to the ball way, way too long. I think he got greedy. I think he didn't want to check the ball down. He was trying to be, um, you know, he wanted to be the big macho guy, make a play downfield, and nothing was there. He was unwilling to check down. You got to just take what the defense gives you a check down, even on third and 10. But later on a first and 10, I I saw a very confusing thing. He makes eye contact with the receiver who's open, and he doesn't throw in the ball. It's weird. Like, he's you, you pause it on film. He's looking at the guy. They're making eye contact, and for whatever reason, he doesn't throw the ball. <laughs> and on my notes, I'm looking, at, I'm just writing, I'm like, what in the world is he looking at? I don't understand. So there are times where Haskins is really slow to process the defense. And that is concerning, but I don't think it's a cause to panic yet. You know, he's young, he's a rookie. I think he's going to get better. He needs more reps and more practice before he can get better and process the defense faster. Remember, this is a guy who played one year in college. He needs time to develop. Now, the seventh thing is a little more scary if you're a Redskins fan. I think he might be afraid to get hit. He had a few inaccurate throws anyway. I think often his feet aren't great and the ball comes out of his hand kind of weird. But there are two plays that stand out to me with inaccuracy that really concern me. And the first one is on his very first interception of the day, which went for a pick six. It's a very simple concept. Haskins' read progression starts on the left. He's going to high-low the corner, see if he carries with the vertical at all. The corner does. Now, I think personally he had a good matchup with one-on-one coverage down the left sideline. For whatever reason, he didn't like it. Fair enough. He came off to the sail route. And the sail route coming across the field is open. He's beat his man by about a step. And Dwayne Haskins does the right thing. He pulls the trigger. Here's the problem. If you watch film, he cowers away. He doesn't step into his throw. He's inaccurate, and it leads to a pick six. That's really alarming if you're watching your young quarterback. If that's you're a Redskins fan, you go, oh, is our guy afraid to get hit? That's really bad. There's another throw down the right sideline where he doesn't step into his throw. He's falling away from pressure. He looks scared to get hit, and I don't blame him. I understand. I don't play in the NFL. I wouldn't want to get hit by giant defensive linemen, but that's part of the job. If you're going to play in the NFL— You're going to get hit as you throw. And it looks like Dwayne Haskins might be afraid to get hit. That's the most alarming, concerning thing I saw on film from Haskins. Now, the eighth and final point I want to talk about are his two other interceptions. We saw one of them, the pick six. There's two other interceptions. We'll start with the last one he threw. His third was not entirely his fault. We'll start there. Uh, Him and his receiver's timing were just off. You know, Dwayne's trying to throw the ball before the receiver gets out of his break. And he might have been, I think, a tad early. The goal on a, a timing throw like this is to, it's, it's, a, it's a hitch, right? You're trying to throw the ball so that as the receiver turns around, the ball hits him in the hands. Haskins is a bit early. Now, Vernon Davis, the intended receiver, comes out of his break a little bit slow. And the combination of Haskins being a bit early and Vernon Davis being a bit slow leads to the ball being tipped up and intercepted. I can live with that. That's okay. The next one is also, I think, just a learning moment for Dwayne Haskins. It's a second interception. It's kind of a a weird decision. There's a fade ball down the right sideline, and the receiver wasn't really open. It's man-to-man coverage, and the defender's in great position. What Haskins needs to do here is either 
do not throw the ball to that spot or throw the ball to the back shoulder where only your receiver can get it. Instead, what he does is floats the ball up in the air, which allows the defender who's right there in great position to make a play and grab the interception. That's the wrong trajectory. That's not a great decision and not a great ball. If you're going to throw that ball, you got to throw it where only your guy can make a play. So I'm concerned about Dwayne Haskins. You know, I'm glad he's not playing this week coming up against the Patriots. Colt McCoy is going to start for the Redskins against the Patriots. I think that would be horrible. It's a way you ruin your quarterback's confidence. But now there's also rumors that Jay Gruden, the Redskins head coach, might not have wanted, might did not want Dwayne Haskins in the NFL draft. And that's even more alarming. If a coach doesn't want you and doesn't believe in you, ooh, then he's really in trouble. I think Haskins, what I've seen on film, he's slow to process defenses. His feet isn't, aren't great. He's afraid to get hit. He's not making incredible decisions. I think that's already really alarming. And then if your coach doesn't believe you can succeed, that's, man, that's really, really bad. I think he's got a lot to overcome. Dwayne Haskins does. I think he can succeed. There were some flashes of good moments. It wasn't the end of the world what he did and the mistakes he made. But I am very concerned about Haskins. And I'm concerned he might fail in the NFL. So let's shift from, you know, the sky is falling with Dwayne Haskins. (laughs) Which is a joke, by the way. It's not. To another quarterback everyone's ready to just totally give up on and says the sky is falling with the Dallas Cowboys offense. So last weekend, the Dallas Cowboys offense scored only 10 points, only 10 points against the Saints defense. And many, many people jumped to the conclusion that their quarterback, the Cowboys quarterback, Dak Prescott, is terrible. (sighs) And uh, so I took a lot of people have opinions, right? I took a look at the film. What does the film say? That's a question I regularly ask. And I wanted to find out why did the Cowboys score 10 points? What really happened in this game? And so everyone is so quick to jump on Dak Prescott. And nobody acknowledges the fact that the Saints defense was unbelievable on Sunday. It's one thing to say that, you know, (laughs) I can tell you, and this is a true fact and a true statement, that the Cowboys only ran for 2.3 yards on average against the Saints. But I want to show you, if you're watching YouTube, I want to show you what happened and what really went down in the running game over and over and over again. Saints linebackers flew downfield and made great tackles. So that's one thing that hurts your offense is you can't run the ball very well. Linebacker number 56, Demario Davis, played incredible. He had nine tackles. He was great against the run. And there's then there's a play where the Saints safety, Von Bell, flies upfield and makes a tackle at the line of scrimmage. A safety runs 12 yards Tackles Ezekiel Elliott at the line of scrimmage. That's ridiculous. The Saints were geared up and ready to stop the Cowboys from running the ball. But the other thing you'll see is that the Saints consistently played really, really good coverage. Cowboys receiver Amari Cooper was unable to win physical contested passes. He could not beat man coverage with the guy on his back. There was a situation where Amari Cooper ran a slant against one-on-one coverage. And he's got to beat his man inside. It's a slant. Dak Prescott cannot wait to see if he's going to win. It's a tight window. Dak Prescott needs to throw the ball before he makes his break and trust that Amari Cooper is going to beat his man inside. And Cooper didn't. Cooper didn't win that matchup. Now, what you will not find on film is a bunch of negative plays from Dak Prescott. He was 22 for 33 passing at 223 yards. 
zero touchdowns. He did have an interception on the final play of the game. And I really liked what I saw. He was regularly taking what the defense gave him. He wasn't afraid to get hit as he threw. That's a big one. He really stepped into his throw. So there's a play where he gets leveled and still delivered a strike on the right sideline. And once on third and four, Dak Prescott did a great job throwing for a first down. It's third down, and Jason Witten, the Cowboys tight end, fumbled. That's one third down. Later on another third down, he threw a little bit behind Randall Cobb, but still hit him in the right spot, hit him in the hands, and Randall Cobb simply dropped the pass. That's a ball that needs to be caught. It's on third down. That's a big situation. So when you look at what happened on third downs and on big plays, the Cowboys receivers kind of let their quarterback down a couple times. Now, Dak also had two absolutely perfect throws downfield. One was in the third quarter. It's an incredible throw into a tight window over the middle of the field, which set up the Cowboys for a touchdown. Like the one time people, I think, watching this game were criticizing, well, Dak can't throw the ball downfield. Stop it. Watch the film. Two throws, one in that third quarter, one on the final drive with 17 seconds left. He threw an absolute laser beam to Randall Cobb over the middle. Don't tell me Dak Prescott can't throw the ball downfield. You're wrong. It's just an inaccurate, it's not a factual statement. You're just, you're just wrong. His footwork has much improved from last year. That's led to better accuracy downfield. The truth is that the Saints played really good coverage. Nobody was open, so Dak had to take things underneath. And when there was an opening downfield, Dak took it and was successful. You also got to acknowledge that Saints defensive line was incredible. There was a moment where they were way behind the sticks. Dak Prescott threw them up to fourth and one. Like on a third and eight, he threw for seven yards. And on fourth and one, the Cowboys run the ball and got stuffed. They could not run the ball against the Saints defensive line. So the question to me is, you know, did the Cowboys play bad or did the Saints play good? And to me, I watched the film and I think, I think the narrative here is that the Saints defense is just better than everybody's giving them credit for. They're one of their, I think are a top defense in the entire NFL. One of the things they constantly did was put pressure on Dak with a three and a four man rush. If you can only bring pressure with three guys and drop a bunch of guys into coverage, that puts a gigantic disadvantage on the offense. He also handled the pressure they brought really, really well. He was getting rid of the ball quickly. He was finding his checkdowns. He was trying to eliminate and effectively eliminating the negative plays he could have made. Now, there were four plays I watched where Dak Prescott could have been better. I want to talk about every single one of those plays. The first one is on a second and nine in the red zone. Dak was about a hair late on a dig route. We'll call it one second late on a dig route breaking to the inside. If you pause it, when the receiver comes open, Dak Prescott's still holding the ball, hasn't even started his throwing motion yet. He's just late on this throw by about a second, but he's late. The second play I want to talk about was on third and nine, where there's great coverage by the Saints. Dak does a good job buying time. He runs around, he extends the play, and then he throws into the end zone and he misses Randall Cobb, what would have been for a touchdown, by about a foot to the left. So right now, Dak is that close. He's so very close. On second and nine, he's about a second late on the dig breaking inside. And on third and nine, he's about a foot to the left for what would have been a touchdown. Those are the first two plays. The next play I want to talk about, it was a while, by the way, before Dak Prescott had another play worthy of criticism. But in the fourth quarter, on second and six with 13 minutes left, the Saints show blitz coming from the right. And they're clearly bringing pressure. And I thought Dak Prescott recognized it. He has Randall Cobb running a slant route behind it. It's a perfect call. All he's got to do, the minute he catches the snap, turn, throw the ball to Randall Cobb, breaking inside. 
throw it right behind the blitz. And for whatever reason, I don't understand, Dak took a really lazy drop, took too long, and it cost him the defender was able to make a play on the ball. I don't know why he did that, but it, he saw the blitz. He just, for whatever reason, didn't react to it as quickly as he should have. Now, the fourth play I want to talk about is on a first and 10 with a minute 39 left. Dak gets sacked. And uh, he has a guy that came wide open over the middle of the field. And he, I would have liked to see Dak Prescott here throw him the ball. Throw the ball to that guy in the middle of the field. I understand there's pressure in your face. getting hit. It's hard. It's a, what people use this term too often, but it's a bang-bang play. And I think Dak was afraid of making a bad play worse by throwing the ball as he's getting hit. Maybe he gets tipped up. Who knows? But that's the only other play I can find where I wanted more from Dak. Now, the other play, I guess <laughs> there is a fifth play. It's the very last play of the game. It's a Hail Mary. This one's up for debate. A Hail Mary, by the way, is a deep ball where it's your last prayer, throwing the ball downfield, trying to score a touchdown on the very last play of the game. And he gets hit as he throws. It's a tough look because the Saints dialed up a really good delayed blitz, which forced him to throw the ball before he wanted to. But in theory, on a Hail Mary, the quarterback avoids pressure, buys time, rolls out, lets the receivers get all, get all the way downfield. And by buying time and finding a space where you're open, you can get your full weight into the ball and throw the ball all the way to the end zone. That didn't happen here, but it's also tough to criticize Dak because of the pressure the Saints brought. Uh, I, I don't know, man. Um, I understand that, you know, people really want to criticize Dak. They're very skeptical. They don't want to give him a giant contract. And what people did was they found the Saints game, said, here's a great example of this is why Dak Prescott shouldn't be paid. But you got to understand, Dak Prescott wasn't terrible. The Saints defense, on the other hand, was incredible. They stuffed the Cowboys running game. They put constant pressure on the quarterback. And the Cowboys receivers missed a couple plays. Dak Prescott was not the problem against the New Orleans Saints last Sunday. The Cowboys had drops and fumbles on third down. And Dak played really well. He literally missed three or four game, three or four plays the entire game. There were literally three or four plays the entire game where he was the problem. He did a really good job. Now he's not Patrick Mahomes or Russell Wilson, or Drew Brees. He doesn't make impeccable decisions. He doesn't make incredible throws that nobody else can make. He doesn't roll the left and throw the ball to into a tight window on the back line of the end zone. But he's also playing really well, and that game was not his fault. Dak Prescott's steadily improving every single week, and his loss to the Saints did not concern me. I understand that people in the media found an example where they can go, oh, this is why you shouldn't sign Dak. You can build an argument. If you want to build an argument, Go ahead. But the Cowboys' performance against the Saints, Dak Prescott was not the thing that concerned me from that. The thing that concerned me was, oh, uh, receivers, you know, Amara Cooper's not winning contested passes where he needs to be more physical. Amara Cooper's great at running routes and getting open with his speed, but I want to see more physicality from Amari Cooper. I want to see Randall Cobb catch that pass on third down. I want to see Jason Witten not fumble on third down. Why can't the Cowboys run the ball better? There were a lot of problems from the Cowboys' offense it was not their quarterback. He played a good game. His teammates missed some opportunities, but the narrative here is that the Saints' defense played incredible against the Dallas Cowboys, making plays, you know, flying to stop the run, having a great pass rush with only three guys and four guys at times. The narrative here is not that Dak Prescott was bad. It's that the Saints' defense was incredible. Okay, uh, before I take a short break, I want to do my 
you know, the most important topic of the entire day. It's about my younger brother saying, uh, three years ago, my younger brother took his life and it was heartbreaking. It was the hardest thing I've ever been through. And, uh, through that loss, I learned two really painful lessons. The first one is that, you know, if you're struggling, please go get help. My brother never shared his struggles. Nobody knew he was having a hard time. He suffered in silence. He never reached out to anybody for help. So I'm telling you, the suicide hotline is 1-800-273-8255, 1-800-273-8255. That is a suicide hotline. If you're struggling, reach out to somebody, go get help. Reach out to a professional. That's one hard lesson I learned. The second one is that I didn't make it clear enough to my brother that I was there for him if he was having a hard time, that if he needs help or he needs anything, I'm there for him. And so be sure to tell the people in your life you love them, you care about them, and you're going to be there for them if they're having a hard time. I didn't make it clear enough to my brother that I was there for him. And I saw him every single week, all the time, and he never reached out to me. And you know, part of that is him. I wish he'd reach out to me, but part of that's on me. I should have said, hey, man, I love you. And I'm here for you. So make sure the people in your life know they're loved and know that you're there for them if they need help. Guys, my name is Zach Schaumler. I'm going to take a short break. When I return, we'll do Ask Zach. And we will talk about my favorite storylines for the NFL Week 5. My name is Zach Schaumler. I will be right back. All right, we are back. Um, I guess we'll just jump right into it. It's time for Ask Zach. Ask Zach is the way I end every single one of my podcasts. People who support me on Patreon.com, Patreon.com forward slash Zach Schaumler. So dollar a month. You can give me more if you want. It literally pays my bills. I'd be very grateful. Um, but for a dollar a month, you get access to submit questions to me through Patreon. I only submit questions. Uh, I only accept questions submitted on Patreon, Patreon.com. Uh, you can send me DMs. You can comment them on posts. But I only accept questions through there. And I will not guarantee that I read your question on the show, but I will guarantee that with my eyeballs, I will look at every single question submitted and then the top couple questions I read, I pick and then I read them on this segment called Ask Zach. Uh, the first question I want to talk about, there's two of them, about the same kind of general idea are from Patrick and Daniel. Patrick writes in and says, hey, Zach, as I am from Germany, I wonder what you think about international games. We used to have a few games in London every year. But now, do you think the NFL should do more games in Europe, Australia? Do you think an international franchise would be possible? What are your thoughts on this? Greetings, Patrick. So that's Patrick. Daniel writes in and says, hey, Zach. First, I wanted to say congratulations on hitting 100K. Uh, thank you so much, man. Daniel says, it's an immense milestone. However, I'm sure there are many more to come. I've been a subscriber for a while and recently on Patreon. I have great memories last year of watching your podcast whilst on break at work. These, are, these always put a smile on my face and made my day better. So I'd like to thank you for all your hard work. Uh, thank you, man. That means, uh, it means a lot. He says, my question perhaps is not the most interesting. Would you like to see an NFL team move to an international location? Could you see this as a viable option in the future? And how do you believe it would affect the NFL? Discuss, he says, smiley face. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Patrick. I really appreciate you guys. Um, and I'm very grateful for your support and for your questions. So... I like the idea, by the way, of having an international team and having international games. My show is a great example that people all over the world, people like Pat in Germany, like Patrick, are interested in American football, and the NFL has a very viable market overseas. Now, I think Europe is where they're talking about, you know, there's a loophole in their question. Could I see a team working in Canada? Absolutely. Could I see a team working in 
Mexico City, yes. Mexico City is a five-hour flight from where I live. And it's really a five-hour flight from Seattle. It's probably a shorter flight from Portland to where I live. And, uh, and the East Coast is so condensed that, you know, Washington, D.C. is only an hour and a half flight from Toronto, Canada. So Toronto, Canada, Mexico City, those are places that would be great for NFL teams. It'd be very easy. But the real question, the challenging question is, could a team work overseas, farther overseas? Uh, one of the guys threw out the question, Australia. Uh, Australia, there's no way that would work to me. It's an 18-hour flight from where I live. I, actually, I think it's an 18-hour flight from New York. I can't remember, Seattle or New York. Either way, it's halfway across the globe. It's impossible. But a, uh, a f- team in London could very well work. London to s- Portland, where I live, London to the West Coast time zone is a seven-hour difference. It's also a seven-hour flight from New York City. So the best way I would do it is if I were to put a team in London and say all your games are night games, you're only playing at 5 p.m., that's it. A 5 p.m. game in London would start at 10 a.m. on the West Coast, start at 1 p.m. on the East Coast, that works pretty well. That's actually not bad. And I think the best way to do it, if you're going to play a game in London, if I was the head coach, what I would say is, okay, we play our game on Sunday. On Monday or Monday or Tuesday, we are all flying to London. We're spending the entire week in London. We're practicing in London. We're putting in the game plan in London. Get there, adjust to the time zone, and be there all week. In fact, the Saints just did that with Seattle. The Saints played a game in LA uh, a week, two weeks ago. And instead of going back to New Orleans to practice, they just went up to Bellevue, Washington, in the Seattle area, practiced in Seattle all week, and then played the Seahawks that same week. So I like that. I think um, I think a, a London team is very viable. That could work. I think games in London work. Um, I think farther away is a problem. It's a bit too far. Like Australia is just too far. I think Australia in 18 hours one way, that's 36 hours in a plane. You lose over an entire day of preparation and of practice time, not to mention guys trying to get healthy from medical situations. You can't be on a plane for 36 hours the week of a game. It's just too much time. Um, but I do also want to point out an international team, a team in London would have a really hard time attracting free agents. I think taxes would be higher because you have you have taxes in London. I think you also have to pay taxes if you live here at home. If you have dual residency, I think you pay taxes in both. Conversions would be a mess. Um, and the other problem is if you're going to have a team in London, you got to recognize you're asking American players to go to London and live for at least six months of the year, if not longer, which is far away from their families. It's not a big draw. I don't think you're going to get top-level free agents to a team in London. Maybe I'm wrong. And, and maybe, honestly, the smart ones, a really smart player who has a big brand could say, no, I'm going to go be the man in London. I'll be the only person in that market I could dominate. I could be the most popular player in Europe by being the only really superstar in London that plays, in Europe, that plays my sport, American football. So I think there's a possibility you could get free agents if you marketed it that way. But I think as a whole, you're going to have a harder time getting players to want to go to London when they have other options closer to their families and closer to home. So I think it's totally possible to have international franchises. I think logistics are hard, taxes, payroll, free agents, all that stuff. It's a mess. Be a little bit chaotic, but it's doable to have a team overseas in London. Australia, too far. I think Australia is unrealistic and not going to happen. So that's one question. Um, The next question is from Brendan. Brendan says, hey, Zach, new patron here. Brendan, thank you so much. Your support means the world to me. It pays my bills. It lets this show be possible. Um, I'm so grateful for your support. Brendan says, I know you do a film analysis on Matthew Stafford. I know you said you'd do a film analysis on Matthew Stafford soon, 
but I'm itching to know, do his haters have ground to hate? Is his record against winning teams entirely his fault? When will his film analysis be dropping? Thanks and have a good day. Uh, by the way, I like Matthew Stafford. He's made a ton of incredible throws. He made a bunch of great throws against the Chiefs last week. Uh, I don't think he gets the love he deserves. This is my initial impression. I made a video about this. It's called like my gut sense of Matthew Stafford. You just look it up if you want, Brendan. It's all about how I think that without watching film, it seems like Matthew Stafford's been a victim of a really bad franchise, a terrible organization with a terrible culture. Now, it is also important as the quarterback, it's part of Matthew Stafford's job to influence the culture and maybe change the culture if it's bad. But I think he's been a victim of a really bad Detroit Lions franchise for so many years. Now, I also plan on doing a film analysis someday of Matthew Stafford. It's either going to happen during the middle of this season or after the season ends. Uh, and maybe both. But I do, I really find it more important to do a, a video about Matthew Stafford after the year is completely over. Because I want to get all 16 games considered when I make a video about him. Because I really, I don't want to just make a quick video and consider one defense. How does Matthew Savard play over the course of an entire year? Because if I'm going to make an argument, is he worth the money? Is he overrated, this or that? I want to make a really good, comprehensive, informed video. And a video midway through the season with only a couple games uh, of evidence is not that impressive when you compare it to a giant video with 16 games of evidence. That's far more interesting. And so I'm definitely going to make a video about Stafford this offseason. The question is, is there going to be a moment this year where I find that I need to talk about him before then during the middle of the season? Peter writes in. Peter and Wyatt have both uh, asked questions about very similar things. Peter says, hey, Zach, when do you know it's time to move on from a high draft pick at quarterback? A guy like Mitch Trubisky comes to mind. He's never stood out as a franchise quarterback and seems to be a game manager. For example, Chase Daniel did his job really well. Should the Bears move on and try to find a quarterback that would be a difference maker on the field? That's uh, why it's Peter's question. So Peter, thank you so much. Wyatt's question is, hey, Zach, I would just like to first congratulate you on getting 100,000 subscribers. Thank you so much. It's an amazing milestone. You deserve it. Again, thank you. I can't wait for one mil. If we ever get to one million, I, <laughs> oh my gosh, it would be, uh, I'd be, what, I can't even insert a phrase. I just would be, um, I couldn't believe it if we got to a million ever. You understand that's 10 more than the number we have now. That's 10 times. That's incredible. So his question is, is, do you think that Mitch Trubisky now, do you think that Mitch Trubisky has the fundamentals to be an elite quarterback with training? Could he progress from where he is now? Or do you think he just has a low ceiling? Thank you. So the question is about Mitchell Trubisky. Wyatt and Peter both. Um, I haven't watched film. I'll be very honest and try, candid about that. That's not true. I did watch um, the Vikings and the Bears Last year, I was watching it for Kirk Cousins, but I did, I popped over and watched, you know, Mitchell Trubisky's entire game too, because I was just curious. And I've watched a lot of games from Mitchell Trubisky, and I was very, very, very unimpressed. He's got average arm strength. He misses a lot of easy throws. He misses people often, doesn't see them when they're wide open. And I think he's subpar as a vocal leader. I'm not impressed. He has no presence to me in interviews, in any, he just never, ever, he has like the personality of, I don't know, name something, a cardboard box. I'm never impressed with Mitchell Trubisky. He's very bland and vanilla. And I like vanilla ice cream. I don't like vanilla from my quarterback. I'm not a believer of Mitchell Trubisky. And maybe film will change my mind. I will do a film analysis of him. In fact, next week I'm doing a film analysis, Mitchell Trubisky versus Chase Daniel. Do all five, all six of their games, I guess all five of their games they've played. And 
I will deliver my opinion on Mitch Trubisky. But before that happened, I wanted to do this topic and say, right now, I'm very, very highly skeptical of Mitchell Trubisky. I have an open mind. Maybe he changes my mind on film, but I think he's being carried by a brilliant offensive coach, Matt Nagy. And uh, I'm, mm, I'm really not impressed with Trubisky, even a little bit. Okay, um, this one's a fun name to say. It's Basalam. Oh, it's oh, it's way easier than I thought. It's Basalamander eighty nine. I was trying to be like Basalamander eighty. No, it's Basalamander eighty nine. He writes in and says, "Is it too early to say Minshew can be a franchise quarterback? I feel like he's not only exceeding every expectation, but there there is still a lot of skepticism about his ceiling as a quarterback." Wow, reading reading aloud is so hard. So my question, you know, ceiling is very silly to me. Uh, Tom Brady, for example, has a terribly low ceiling. He doesn't have a giant arm. He's he's just not physically impressive at all. And Tom Brady's arguably the greatest quarterback of all time. How about the other guy? You know, Joe Montana is very physically unimpressive, but he had great timing. He was a good leader. He did little things right. Playing quarterback's not about your physical ability. Now, it sure helps if you have a giant arm like Josh Allen or Patrick Mahomes um, like I think Baker Mayfield has a stronger arm than Gardner Minshew. But Gardner Minshew can definitely succeed. He has average arm strength, but he's very accurate. He has great timing. He's a good leader, and he understands defenses really well. He can do everything that's asked of him flawlessly. He's also in a great climate. He's in the AFC South. So he plays indoors against the Texans, indoors against the Colts. Plays eight games in Florida, which is awesome. In the rain, maybe he can handle rain. It's the snow I'd be concerned about Gardner Minshew with. And then he plays against the Titans. So it's a little too early, yeah, to, to make a definitive decision on Gardner Minshew, but I'm all in. I believe in him. Um, I think it's silly to say he could not become a franchise quarterback because he has all the tools he needs. Quarterback is not about arm strength or sprinting ability. Like, like quarterback doesn't need to be fast. For Gardner Minshew to succeed as a quarterback, he needs to have great timing, a great understanding of defense, he needs to continue being a great leader, and needs to be highly accurate. His arm's better. He's using his legs better than he did in college. I think Gardner Minshew has everything he needs to become a great quarterback and become a franchise quarterback if he's not already. And uh, yeah, I think ceiling is a very silly thing to bring up when you're talking about Gardner Minshew. Justin writes in. He says, good morning, Zach. He must have written that this morning. Uh, He says, if you could win a gig doing commentary with Tony Romo, Jim Nance, or Chris Collinsworth, then who would you choose and why? He continues with a really confusing, the only catch is, Justin, I'm really sorry. I don't understand this fully. I'm sure he's trying to, he wants him to pick a team that could win a Super Bowl that's got a bad record. Uh, I think maybe the Lions, they don't have a bad record, but the Lions could win a Super Bowl and surprise people. Um, He says, I'd love to see you with Chris Collinsworth. I think you'd knock his socks off. Justin, my guy is Joe Buck. And I think, you know, people need to understand, there are two positions in a booth. You only need two guys, by the way. You don't need three. I effing hate. I really, really hate when a broadcast has three guys on it because it's so unnecessary. And it doesn't work. To me, you don't need three guys. So there are two positions in a broadcast booth. One of them does play-by-play. The play-by-play guy describes what is happening as it happens. Those are guys like uh, uh, Joe Buck is a great play-by-play announcer. Then there's color commentary. That's my position. So I analyze and break down the game. So instead of saying, you know, the 40, the 50, my, my job is after the touchdown happens to go, 
here's why that happened. And here's a little bit of information and opinion and offer some insight and entertainment as to why that happened on the field in the game. So of the people you listed, the only person I could work with is Jim Nance. I mean, look, I could work with Tony Romo, but you need a guy doing play-by-play. And Jim Nance is a play-by-play guy. Tony Romo is a color analyst. I'm a color analyst. And so, you know, Tony Romo and I play the same position. <laughs> Jim Nance's guy, I would work with other guys you listed. But my guy, if I had to pick, my guy would be Joe Buck. He's phenomenal. Or, you know, my buddy Sean O'Connor is phenomenal. My, my, one of my best friends is a really great play-by-play analyst or announcer. It'd be fun to work with him. So there's analysts on one side, play-by-play on the other. I actually want to go on a tangent from here. You know, while I'm on this topic, um, I had breakfast with my dad yesterday. And he told me I should make a video describing my approach to color commentary. I also agree, I agreed with him um, because my style is intentionally unique. Uh, I'm not trying to be like other broadcasters. I think it's very important that I be totally myself. And I'm not trying to be professional. And I'm not trying to be unprofessional either, but I'm trying to make it seem like when you're watching a game or listening to a game I broadcast, I want the viewer to feel like they're in my living room with me. Uh, I think it's there's a silly layer of formality that's very unnecessary when you broadcast. Like, let's be honest about what's happening. I'm a guy in a booth watching a football game. Can we all acknowledge that? I, I just I, I break the fourth wall all the time, and uh, and I think people could call me the Deadpool of broadcasting. That's a real thing. Uh, I also, you know, without the cussing, of course. Um, so there's a couple things I said there that are important that you might not know the meaning of. I said the words color commentary. I said the words uh, breaking the fourth wall, and I talked about Deadpool. So number one, color commentary is when there are, you know, there are two guys in a booth. One of them does play-by-play. The play-by-play guy describes what is happening as it happens. You know, the 40, the 50, or the quarterback looks left, he throws to the right. He's the guy, the play-by-play guy describes the play. When the play is over, then the color commentator comes in and gives their analysis of the game. I'm the color commentator. That's me. You try to explain what's happening and why. You try to do it in an entertaining way. You want to analyze football. Most of all, the most important part is provide entertainment and information. Teach people a little bit about football so they can walk away from a game going, oh, yeah, I feel pretty. You feel a little bit smarter, I hope, when you watch me broadcast a football game. You want to teach people a couple, a thing or two. That's very, very important. And so breaking the fourth wall, you know, that's breaking the fourth wall in Deadpool. I say that kind of silly. Um, if you watch the movie Deadpool, Deadpool knows he's in a movie. That character talks directly to the audience. He's like, I'm in a movie. I'm going to talk to the people watching the movie in the theater. And so again, I'm the guy who I'm, I, you know who I am. I'm in a booth watching football. And so I acknowledge that I talk directly to the audience and I don't understand why people should pretend like why, why pretend, right? I love football. I'm here. Join me watching a football game. And I really believe when I talk about football, my passion comes through. I love it. I love the game of football. And I think being myself is far more important and more entertaining than trying to be this formal guy, suit and tie. Very, I'm not that guy. I think I just totally try to be myself, and I hope that comes through on camera. I'm so proud of that Washington State-Utah broadcast I did. Um, you know, If you go listen to the last hour to 45 minutes of it, the game is over. It's a blowout. Like Utah's kicking the butts of Washington State. But I think we made the game interesting, even though it was a blowout. And so I, I just, man, I'm really proud of that broadcast. And I think I can hold viewers, even if a game is totally over. 
Now, two other final things I want to talk about in, in my approach to broadcasting. One is that when I make a claim, I try to back it up with an explanation. I don't just say, you know, this guy's a good receiver. Because a lot of analysts do that. They say, this guy's a good receiver, and they leave it at that. No, I try to say, okay, no. Aesop Winston Jr. is a good receiver because he, he's really good at working on the skills he needs to work on. He's not physically the most gifted receiver. He's not the tallest. He's not the fastest. But you can't control that. The things he can control, Aesop Winston Jr. has done a great job controlling. He runs great routes. He's got good hands. All the skills he could develop by working on his own, he has. I respect Aesop Winston Jr.'s work ethic. That's why he's a great receiver. My point is, if I'm going to give you a statement, this guy's a great receiver. This guy's a good quarterback. I can back it up with real, actual information behind it. Why do I believe that? So many broadcasters so often make claims, and guess what they don't do? They don't provide a reason for the claim. They don't provide a reason for the thing they believe. I do that. And all I'm doing in a broadcast, this is the second point I wanted to bring up, is that all I'm doing is what I wished announcers had done my entire life. I've always watched announcing and gone, why are they so formal? Why don't they break the fourth wall? Why don't they teach people a little more football? Why are they talking in such hard terms to understand? And so I, I really, that's my approach. I want to teach people the game of football. I want to have fun doing it. I want my passion to come through the screen. I want to explain my statements. I'm not just going to make a claim and then not back it up with any examples or anything else. And so that's my approach to being a color, uh, color commentator. I think it's really important. I love the job, and I want to do more of it. So I wanted to make this video to explain I'm a little bit different than the traditional color analyst, and there's a reason for that. I'm totally myself, and I think it's very important to keep doing that and keep being myself. If I ever make it, I want to do it my way, being myself the way I believe in. I never want to conform and try to you know, be this really formal, stick-in-the-mud, boring I'll never be the boring commentator. I promise you that. I might not be what you want. I might be too informal. But I will always be fun and informative and completely myself. And that's the what I can live with. And that's my approach to color commentary. Okay, uh, Ed Boy wrote in. Where is my... I lost all my papers. I went way off script. Ed Boy wrote in and said, On Josh Rosen, do you think he's showing enough to be the guy the Dolphins build around? Or... Do you think the Dolphins still need to draft a new quarterback before they can start being productive again? Says, quotes, Dolphins fan here. Uh, you know, I really think he's certainly good enough. Josh Rosen's certainly a good enough quarterback to be the man in Miami. The question is his leadership. The Dolphins suck. And when you're a bad team, you learn a lot about the character of your quarterback. I think we'll be able to answer better whether or not Josh Rosen is the guy at the end of the year. But I want, to, I want to acknowledge this question, Ed Boy, because I think it's important. I will make a video, of course, whether or not Josh Rosen should be kept around in Miami. Um, I think it's good that he's playing, by the way. We get time now to evaluate Josh Rosen, to learn what he's like as a quarterback, to evaluate him not only as a player, but also as a leader. And at the end of this year, I'll be able to answer that question, whether or not Josh Rosen is the guy in Miami. Right now, I don't know. And right now, no one will know. The Dolphins are tr still trying to figure that out. But leadership is the most important key right there. If he has a bad attitude and doesn't help the people around him, it doesn't matter. Leadership is what will make or break Josh Rosen. It will make or decide whether or not he's the guy long-term in Miami. Caleb writes in. Caleb says, hey, Zach. I hope the Pacific Northwest is treating you well. Caleb, by the way, is one of my biggest supporters. We're, he's one of my earliest Patreon supporters. He's really helped me a lot early on. He's a great dude. 
He says, I want to ask about the MLB playoffs now that the play-in games are done. What matchups should I be looking for in the ALDS slash NLDS? Should I bother getting a ticket to see the Tampa Bay Rays? Uh, one, I hate that ALDS game one happened today at noon. Noon on a Friday, you got the Rays and Astros. It's weird. I don't understand. And the problem with the MLB playoffs right now is that baseball is constantly up against football. Thursday night, you have the Rams Seahawks. I picked watching that game instead of baseball. I tried to watch baseball when I could on my phone, but like, I'm trying to pay attention to the football game. Friday night, you have high school football. I'm going to a game tonight. Saturday night, you have college football. Saturday, all day, you have college football. Sunday, all day, you have NFL football. So Tuesday and Wednesday nights are the two days that the MLB needs to win. I want to watch baseball on Tuesday and Wednesday this upcoming week. And uh, they'd better deliver some good games because that's when I'm going to be tuned in and watching with all my intent, not side distracted, not side with the... They don't know my attention anywhere else because I'll be watching baseball. There's no football on to watch. Tuesday, Wednesday night are the most important nights for the MLB playoffs. I really want to watch the Dodgers versus the Braves in the NLCS. and the ALCS, I want to see the Astros and the Yankees. But regardless of that, there are still really good matchups coming up ahead in the ALDS and NL- NLDS. So the matchup to watch to me in the first round, other than play-in games, the first round of the Major League Baseball playoffs, First matchup I want to watch is the Twins and the Yankees. The Yankees' best pitcher right now, CeCe Sabathia, is not going to be playing this series. He's out. And neither team really has a lot of pitching depth uh, on their team. It's going to be, I think, a battle of the bats between the Yankees and the Twins. going to be a lot of runs scored. should be a lot of fun. Now, I think the edge goes to the Yankees. They have one really great pitcher, uh, James Paxton. And I think they have a little bit more pitching depth in general than the Twins. But I think Yankees-Twins is going to be a fun series with a lot of runs scored, a lot of hits, really good at-bats. That's what I'm excited to see in the first round of the MLB playoffs. Now, the second part of your question, should I go to a game in Tampa? I would. I'd go to a game in Tampa. Absolutely. You can't lose. First of all, if you go to a game to watch a Tampa Bay Rays play the Astros, you're going to get a playoff atmosphere. That's fun. Second is the food. Hot dog, beer, playoff baseball. Enough said. I, I really, seriously, like, I love a beer and baseball, it goes so well together, being in a ballpark. And then finally, if the Rays get annihilated by the Astros, right? It's very possible that the Rays and Astros is not a competitive series. At least you get to see the Astros play live. You get to see the Houston Astros, which might be the best baseball playoff roster we've ever seen play live. And for the memory and for the being able to say that sentence, I got to watch the Astros play live. That's enough to me. Of course, if I live in... Tampa Bay right now, I'm going to a Tampa Bay Rays game to watch. So that's how I answer that question. Look, you might not get a victory from your hometown team, but I think you'll have a good time. Playoff baseball is the best. Beer, baseball, really good, talented team coming to town. I'm there, absolutely. The next question is from Alex. Alex says, how do you feel about the 0-4 NFL? So he means the 0-4 NFL teams. Which do you think is going to win first, and which do you think could turn around their season. Who could win first? Um, Not the Redskins. They're playing the Jets. Oh, boy. Uh, Well, I think two play each other this week. The Bengals and uh, somebody. Maybe the Bengals and the Broncos play each other this week. Point is, I think the Jets are the only team with a chance to really turn their season around. They're winless because their quarterback is out. Sam Darnold's coming back very soon. And they're lucky they had a bye week, so they got to survive a little better without their quarterback. They're only 0-3, by the way. Now, they do not have Sam Darnold this Sunday. That's a big problem. 
But when their quarterback, Sam Darnold, comes back, the Jets, of all the teams that haven't won a game yet, the Jets could be in the best shape. Uh, now, they're all awful. Like, every team that's und- that hasn't won a game yet is pretty bad. The Bengals are terrible. Uh, they have a bad quarterback. They're injured. They have a bad defense. The Dolphins are tanking. The Broncos consistently find a way to lose every single week. Uh, they have a bad quarterback. They lost Bradley Chubb, their first-round draft pick last year, or defensive end. He's got a torn ACL. The Redskins are trash. Their rookie quarterback, Dwayne Haskins, apparently they might not even want him. There's rumors that their, their coach is like, eh, we're good. The Cardinals are not terrible. They could win a game uh, first, but they have a young quarterback. They're still learning, and uh, you know they play way too much man coverage. Every single team that hasn't won yet is really bad. And of the 0-4 teams, the Broncos, the Redskins, the Dolphins, and the Bengals, I'm pretty sure, if I look at my notes, I'm pretty sure that like the Dolphins and Bengals play each other this week. Am I crazy? The Cardinals and Bengals play each other this week. So one of those teams is going to win a game. I know they're not both 0-4, but 0-3-1 and 0-4, they haven't won a game yet. So one of those teams is going to win and force, maybe the Bengals win first, maybe the Cardinals win first. Uh, either way, the 0-4 teams in the NFL, there's a reason they haven't won yet, and they're all really, really bad. Calvin writes in. Calvin says, hey, Zach. No, he says, hi, Zach. My bad. Hi, Zach. Here are your comments about Jimmy Garoppolo's less than brilliant performance. I'm just wondering, do you think Patriots fans can breathe a sigh of relief that they dodged a bullet? Or do you think Jimmy G would have done much better under Belichick becoming a quarterback that could have carried the Patriots to success? God, reading aloud is so hard. Um, yeah, Calvin, I don't know if Jimmy G is the man yet or not. Um, I don't think it matters either way to New England, though. Uh, at the rate that Tom Brady's playing, Jimmy Garoppolo would still be on the bench. He would have never played. I mean, it just, it didn't make any sense for the Patriots to keep him. Whether Jimmy Garoppolo's a franchise quarterback or not, to have a franchise quarterback on the bench and not trade him away to get value for him would be very, very silly. And uh, it's very clear to me that the only way... Tom Brady is going to leave New England is on his terms when he wants to, whenever he decides. Again, if the Patriots had Jimmy Garoppolo, he wouldn't have played at all in the last couple of years. And so I think the Patriots need to keep drafting quarterbacks so that whenever Brady decides he's done, they have one who's ready. That's why they keep drafting every year they draft one. They're trying to be ready. Like Jarrett Stidham's our guy right now. They're trying to get ready in case Brady decides to retire after this year. Uh, but I don't think it's going to happen. What will not happen to me is they're not going to bench Tom Brady. They're not going to replace Tom Brady while he's still on their roster. Brady's going to make that call himself, and whenever he's done, then the Patriots will replace him. But I think the Patriots had a chance to build around Jimmy Garoppolo, and they decided, nah, we're good. And that told me, oh, the direction of this franchise is completely behind Tom Brady, and they're going to let Tom Brady make that call whenever he's done to retire and have, with dignity, because he's the greatest of all time, in my opinion, and they're not going to force him out. He's going to leave on his own accord. The final question is from Jaeger. Jaeger, Jaeger, I'm going to call him Jaeger. Jaeger writes in and says, he says, after that novel, um, Jaeger wrote me a really kind, long message. I didn't mean to leave that in here, but it's, he says, you know, he was very kind to me in a Patreon response. I do have a question for Ask Zach. I'm wondering what you would do as a GM slash coach of the teams with a quarterback controversy. I'm thinking of a team like the Panthers, the Skins, the Jaguars, the Broncos, or possibly even the Bears and Titans. You can spin it any way you want to. Just curious on your personal thoughts on that. Thanks, Zach. Uh, the only way to deal with a quarterback controversy and a quarterback competition, period, trust me, I know from experience, is you got to be honest with people. You got to ha- have clear, direct lines of communication to the players. 
I think coaches are so afraid to be honest and straightforward. Um, and I think they need to own it. Whatever it is, coaches need to own it and be honest with their quarterbacks about their feelings, about their thoughts. Uh, you got to say like, hey, we like this one guy as a leader, uh, but this other guy is more talented throwing the ball. And so, you know, for now, the better leaders at quarterback because he runs the offense a little better. But, you know, if that young guy we like who's got more talent, more physically talented guy, if he ever steps up, then he'll get the job once the offense uh, is running better under him. Like the Bears, for example, could say, hey, we like Mitchell Drisky. We drafted him high. But right now, Chase Daniels running our offense better. And here's what I mean. When, you're on, when I say honesty, you don't need to be honest to the media. But I really hope that in a locker room where there's a quarterback competition or controversy or battle, that the coaches are honest with the players. If a player doesn't trust his coach and doesn't think that the coach is being honest, it's a gigantic problem. There, there are situations where quarterbacks don't believe and don't trust their coach. And the minute you lose trust of your coach, it's, it's over. And you just you walk away, you leave. And a coach doesn't need to tell the media everything. I, I said that before, I'll say it again. But you got to tell your players what you're thinking. And poor communication during a quarterback battle or a quarterback controversy can cause all kinds of issues. So again, how do you handle it? I think you got to be totally, totally honest with your players. Uh, the coach needs to be willing to hurt feelings. He can't hold anything back. Uh, and players need to know how to hear what their coach really believes without getting their feelings hurt. And because players need to know how things stand. You got to know what's the real situation. What's my coach thinking? So again, how do you deal with a quarterback controversy? You got to be totally honest with your players. Ambiguity is the hardest thing for a quarterback to deal with in a quarterback battle. When they don't know where they stand, it's a giant problem. And that's how you can lose guys. How guys can might walk away from your program if you're not being totally honest with a quarterback battle. And uh, if you're a general manager, I, I think you just, the team, the locker room needs to understand, uh, is this our guy? What are the coaches thinking? You got to just be very clear and honest. You don't need to tell the media anything, but I hope behind the scenes in a, in a locker room, if there's a quarterback battle, that coaches are being really honest and open about their thoughts and their feelings in a quarterback controversy. Guys, that's Ask Zach. Thank you so much. And uh, I'm excited for next week. While we do that, let's move on to NFL Week 5. There are a couple storylines I want to talk about. In fact, I'm going to go through every game on Sunday, and I'm going to share my thought on every storyline for the NFL Week 5 that comes to my mind when I look at the game. So first, you have the Cardinals at the Bengals. I think it's a good chance for the Cardinals to finally get their first win. Uh, they, they're 0-3-1. They haven't won a game this year, and I've been really, really unimpressed with the Bengals so far this year. Next, we have the Bills at the Titans. Uh, this is a tough game for the Titans quarterback, Marcus Mariota. Because the Bills' defense is really, really good. My question is, will the Bills' starter, Josh Allen, play? He left the game last week against the Patriots with a concussion. He's in concussion protocol. Will he play or not? That's being a big deciding factor. Both defenses, the Bills and the Titans, are both good on defense. Their quarterbacks are both subpar. And uh, it could be a very ugly defensive battle between the Bills and the Titans. The Bears and the Raiders play in London. Oh my gosh. Uh, the Bears should win this. They have a terrifying defense. And this is, I believe, I believe this is the first time Khalil Mack is playing his former team, the Raiders. And so I think Khalil Mack is going to go on a tear to prove you should have brought me back. You should have gave me the money I needed and deserved. Uh, I think Khalil Mack is going to come with a vengeance on Sunday against the Bears, against the Raiders, excuse me. And, uh, and I think, you know, the Bears are playing their backup quarterback, Chase Daniel. I think he might be better than their starting quarterback, Mitchell Trubisky, anyways. The Bears are going to win this game, in my opinion, over the Raiders. 
the Buccaneers of the Saints. I cannot wait for this matchup. How is Teddy Bridgewater going to play against the Buccaneers defense? They have a really good pass rush. And how is Jameis Winston going to play? Uh, Jameis Winston's playing against a really good Saints defense. And uh, he has a chance here to make a really big impression against the Saints. I just can't. This is a game I think you should watch. Watch the Buccaneers at the Saints. A good defense on both sides and two quarterbacks that I have questions about. Going to be a really fun one. The Vikings at the Giants. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Kirk Cousins had better play well against the Giants. The Giants have a bad defense. And, uh, you know, the, the Vikings just have to win this game. Their, their franchise is all kind of problems and questions right now. And, uh, yeah, I, I, the Vikings have to win. I'm also curious to see how the Giants rookie quarterback Daniel Jones does against a Vikings defense that is pretty solid. So that'll be fun to watch. The Jets and the Eagles. Oh, man. Jets at the Eagles. The Jets starting quarterback Sam Darnold is out. The Eagles should win this game by a lot. Uh, the Ravens should beat up on the Steelers. The Patriots should murder the Redskins. They will murder the Redskins. The Redskins are terrible. The Patriots are really good. Uh, the Jaguars and the Panthers. That'll be really, really fun. It's Gardner Minshew versus Kyle Allen. The battle of the backups. And two backup quarterbacks who I really like, who are both, I think, quite talented and I think could become the starters for their franchise long-term. Starters for their franchise long-term by playing well, especially in this game. Uh, that's a great underrated matchup, Jaguars-Panthers. Falcons and Texans, oh, I, just, I don't care. I think the Texans should win that game. Uh, the, the Falcons have a really young offensive line against J.J. Watt. I think the Texans are going to do pretty well against the Falcons. But hey, Matt Ryan's still a good quarterback. Could surprise people. Uh, the Broncos and the Chargers, I don't care. I mean, the Broncos, are they really going to start 0-5? The Broncos need to not start 0-5. And the Chargers are 2-2, two two, so they got to win this game to have a chance to stay in playoff contention. Either way, it's ugly. Man, how about the AFC West? Just, oh, other than the Chiefs, there's nobody really that good in that, that division. The Packers at the Cowboys is going to be an incredible game in Arlington, Texas. Uh, I want a high-scoring battle between Aaron Rodgers and Dak Prescott. We might not get that. Uh, I fear we could have a defensive battle on our hands, but Packers at Cowboys is going to be awesome. And then on Sunday Night Football, oh, this one's going to be fun. It's the Colts at the Chiefs, and uh, the question is, can the Colts quarterback Jacoby Brissett go into Kansas City and win? I'm really excited for that. I got a, one more question. One thing game I didn't look up is what's happening on Monday Night Football? I should probably share some kind of thought. Monday Night Football, I'm looking up on my phone. I know the podcast is dragging. My internet's slow, dragging and dragging. Uh, Monday Night Football, we have, it will be in the NFL. I don't want an ad. Please stop. In the NFL Week 5, Monday Night Football, you have the 49ers at the Browns. Oh, I'm glad I looked that up. The 49ers are 3-0. and The Browns are 2-2. and uh, it looks like it's going to be in Santa Clara. Yeah, it's at San Francisco. Man, that's a great matchup. It's a great game. Two teams that need to win. We'll learn a lot about Jimmy Garoppolo. And, uh, man, the Browns, I hope that... I think the 49ers' defense isn't bad. So Baker Mayfield against the Brown, against the 49ers. Going to be fun. I'll be watching. That's the second time the Browns have played on Monday Night Football this week, or this year, already. Wow. A lot of primetime games for the Browns. Can they handle the moment? Can they beat the 49ers? Does Jimmy Garoppolo play well? against the Browns defense. A lot of good stuff. NFL Week 5 is going to be really fun. Uh, that is all I have. Guys, my name is Zach Schalmer. Thank you so very much for listening. Hope you have a great day. And uh, ba-dum-bum, bam, we are done.